0: Hi everyone, welcome to Network Capital TV. Today is a very special day for me because I get to host my friend and entrepreneur Manal Kal. Uh, who's doing extraordinary work at the intersection of food technology and uh, a great humanitarian crisis that we are facing today. So, Manal, welcome to Network Capital. Tell us who you are and what do you do today.
1: Thank you so much, Utkar. It, it's such a pleasure for me to be here. I know we met uh, a few years ago and I'm I'm, I'm so honored to be uh, Part, uh, part of this community, in, in a sense, uh, so my name is Manal, like you mentioned, Manal Kahi. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Eat Off Beat. We are a food company that delivers authentic meals that are entirely conceived, prepared, and delivered by refugees resettled here in New York City. Uh, and. and I got- uh,
0: how do- how did you get to this point because uh, you're a CEPa graduate, walk us through your journey like you, like what take took you to policy school? why did you apply and how did you take the offbeat parts of building each offbeat?
1: Yeah, good one. Um, so I'm originally from Lebanon. I was born in Lebanon. I studied environmental management in undergrad and I was working in environmental consulting for, for a few years and you know i I did some time in europe then back in beirut and was mostly working in in the middle east at least uh, right before moving here to new york city and i started kind of hitting a ceiling back in lebanon so i started looking at opportunities to kind of go abroad or maybe try to expand my network a little bit and that's where i decided to move to new york city for or at least i applied for graduate school at the school of international public affairs in uh, at Columbia university here in new york i kind of wanted to go for International climate policy be a bit more involved on the uh, you know in multilaterals so that's part of why I chose uh, New York City um, and luckily after a lot of work right applications I'm sure everyone here kind of knows more or less uh, uh, what it takes as, as a foreigner to kind of apply for graduate school or those things but basically I went through the entire process luckily I got admitted figured out a few scholarships ways of funding my my my. Uh, I mean, my stay and my, my studies and ended up... Very
0: expensive study, right? Very expensive,
1: very expensive. study. Very expensive. Oh, yeah. I often wonder if it's worth it or not, but I, I definitely think it is. Anyway, long story short, moved to New York City and then I started the graduate program with a very different path in mind. Friends would say, oh, can you make your hummus? Can you bring your hummus? We have this party, we have that. Um, and everyone really loved it, even though... I'm not even a great cook, right? But it, it was kind of made at home, made with love. There was a story to it, and that made it successful. Uh, so maybe just for a bit more context, that was 2013, 2014. It was the midst of the refugee crisis back home. So I was feeling there was a bit of a guilt, I would say, in the back of my mind for having left the country, not being able to do anything about it back home. Um, and there I was here in New York, thinking of who could bring really good hummus to New York City. Mm. So when we started thinking of, literally asking ourselves who could bring, who could make better hummus, who could bring, um, you know, we saw some sort of a market gap here in, in bringing better hummus to the market. And when we thought of who could fill that gap, we thought of Syrian refugees being resettled in the, in New York or in the U.S. at the, at that stage. And knowing the community, I know You know, knowing the culture, uh, it's mostly people who would want to share their food with with their host or with whoever actually is is sharing a table with them. Um, And this is really where kind of the idea came from. So initially we wanted to bring better hummus to New York and we wanted to have that hummus made by Syrian refugees being resettled here. Obviously with the changes and things uh, kind of evolved. We started looking at the market for hummus, already oversaturated in, in New York, and we thought, why not make it a bit more global, right? And have find refugees from all over the world who are mm. also willing to bring all these other re- recipes, who mm. that just like hummus are so much better when they're homemade, when they're made by, you know, made with love by someone who really knows how they should taste like uh, back home at least. Um, and that's how Eat of It was born.
0: Yeah. Well, today it's become uh, quite a sensation. And you know, I mean, I can tell you that there's a huge demand of eat offbeat in different parts of network capital. I mean, once we announced that Manal was doing this podcast, so there's demand for that in London, in Paris, in Berlin, oh, wow. in India as well. So clearly, we're going to explore that. There's lots of market expansion opportunities there. Uh, but That's Manal, really- let's <laughs> <laughs> let's trace steps back a little. When uh, when you apply to SEPA, uh, mm-hmm. you you, know, you were mostly looking at environmental policies. Um, entrepreneurship is not what you see policy graduates do immediately. So when you were applying to SEPA or while while you were at SEPA, uh, what were the career options that you considered and was entrepreneurship anywhere in your r- larger horizon?
1: not at all you know i've never seen myself as an entrepreneur it actually took me a while until i started even calling myself entrepreneur you know or seeing (laughs) myself as an entrepreneur even after i had started um i never did you know most people most entrepreneurs you hear their stories they always tell you oh they've been selling since they were five they did lemonade stands all of that i actually never did that there was no one in my family i'm come from a family of academics Uh, my mom is a social worker right so i i had never even really even considered that as a, as a path. Um, and when I was at SIPA, it was really more about policy. Like I mentioned, I was in environmental policy. I wanted to be more involved in international climate agreements. So that was really the path I was looking at. I wanted to you know, find ways to work in multilaterals. That was really what I was focused on. Uh, but I've always been someone who kind of, when I see an opportunity along the way, if it's something I feel passionate about, I feel strongly about. I go with the. Uh, I often ask myself the question of why not. That's really my my philosophy. I kind of felt like there was an opportunity there, and you know, genuinely, I asked, I I, I told myself, why not? Let's let's try that. And the worst case, I can always go back to the policy world, right? right? Even if I take a year off, try to do this, fail miserably. Uh, all I would have lost is maybe a year, but I would have gained so much knowledge, so much experience, so much mm-hmm. like a huge network, right? So that's really was uh, kind of how I approached it in the early days. Is this answering your question?
0: Yeah, because you know m- many people on network capital apply for policy programs uh, or apply to MBAs, and when you apply, uh, especially in the policy program, many people want to take the international uh, organization route or the you know writing policy. Uh, but increasingly it's becoming really difficult for international uh, folks to do that, even for people who are local to do that. Opportunities are few, you don't really get permanent positions, even the, you know, the salary is not really uh, up to the mark in many cases. So your case also demonstrates that policy graduates can actually use their curiosity to do something different. Uh, it'll be very helpful if you start, uh, start talking to us about the early days, Uh, Was the idea born at Columbia or after that, you know, you and I met at the Penn Columbia Social Impact House, which is uh, in a way where, you know, both our ideas, yours and mine, uh, took off or took some shape. Uh, But that was 2015. I know that you were tinkering around that time, but I would love for you to explain those early days to our listeners
1: yeah absolutely and you're totally right usually kind of policy school is seen as a silo where you're not necessarily supposed to be entrepreneurial but i think that's starting to change and i think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a much smaller community at SIPA, actually at uh, uh you know at SIPA specifically that felt like they wanted to do something a bit different from from policy right. and i mm-hmm. think that community is growing more and more so now when i go back sometimes to a social class like it's a much bigger community. Don't necessarily have to be simply in policy and that don't necessarily feel like policy is different from you know social entrepreneurship. There can be a lot of um, intersections, if, if you will. You don't necessarily have to always be in the public sector and really frown on the, on the private sector. Like there are ways to kind of combine your policy expertise in a way that benefits, let's say, uh, uh, in a public setting or is, is beneficial uh, on, on both ends, in, in a sense. Right. So going back to your question of how it started, it did start while I was exactly in my first year, I think towards the end of my first year at CIPA, I did a two year program. Right. Right. So- in my first year, that's when I generally, it's the story I told you, like the, the homeless thing, right? I started uh, making it, and this is where I was talk- taking a class on social entrepreneurship with Professor Sarah Holloway, who is still an advisor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And a great oh, is that school. right? Uh, yes, that's
0: amazing. I remember yeah. her from uh, PSIH. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So she was with us at, at the uh, um, school, I mean, the, the two-week uh, program we, we, we did together. Uh, basically, I had taken one of her courses, And I kind of started the idea of, I think Sarah herself is very entrepreneurial. Uh, So even though there were not necessarily many classes about that, I took every single, you know, I tried to take those classes that were about social entrepreneurship. Mm. I tried to take other classes, even at the business school, to kind of just uh, hone on these skills that would be. start a business uh, in in general, right? And I kind of disconnected or geared a bit farther away from other classes that would have benefited me in the energy world or in the environmental Hmm. world, right? So I kind of um, not necessarily gear away from that, but focus a bit more on. uh, And the nice thing is that since I was in school, I was already on a student budget, right? I was already uh, in a place where I didn't necessarily need much uh, and Hmm. where I could think to myself-
0: Except good hummus.
1: Except with hummus, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so that was easy. Yeah. Um, but basically, that's where I felt, you know, I, I thought to myself, how many months can I survive without a job, basically? And mm. um, I put a timeline for myself, like, how, literally, how many months can I go on, how many years or whatever, without getting paid or with getting paid much less than, than market right. Right? Um, and I had that in mind kind of just to go back to and think, okay, am I on the right track? Should I move back now or or not? Um, and that was more or less it. The rest is just kind of-
0: So you can, let's talk about it like entrepreneurs. So you calculated your runway, like how much can you really survive, right? Okay. And then you came uh, up with uh, it with, uh, at a personal level, of course, like without you, the company doesn't exist, exactly. right? So you calculated that runway. And then you started, you know, doing some prototypes um, or you started launching and sharing with friends. What was that experience like? What kind of feedback were you getting? And uh, when did you really pivot from making hummus for friends to involving refugees to sort of make it more scalable? Walk us through the entire process.
1: Yeah, you know, you're taking me so far back. I haven't thought about these days in in a long time. But this this is, <laughs> what is. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's why we have these masterclasses, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: there was one pivotal moment actually that I remember quite clearly. Uh, it was still very much of an idea on a on a deck, right back uh, back then. I was still I hadn't even graduated yet, and I had a friend who had launched, you know, he had a shop. He wanted to cater a small event that he was doing, and he asked me, "Oh, can you make some some hummus?" And this is where I thought, "Okay, great. This is a place where I can test and see if people how people react. Maybe we can get some." Um, Early user feedback or or Mm. whatever, and I spent about two days making hummus because we needed a lot. I had a very you know home based uh, uh, food blender processor, Um, and I honestly did not enjoy the process. Right, (laughs) (laughs) spending two days making hummus was kind of uh, this is where I realized one I wasn't necessarily meant to be in the kitchen making the hummus. I probably needed to find someone else who is actually passionate about that to do it, so that was some sort of a light bulb. And the other thing it also made me um, uh, made me realize is that let's maybe not stick to hummus only. If we want to get people yeah. passion, who are home cooks who really want to explore more cooking, making hummus all day and only hummus might get uh, exhausting, right? So it kind of started from a place of Maybe we can call it empathy, but from a place where I tried it myself and I felt like this is not necessarily something I would enjoy yeah. and I'm not sure if someone else would enjoy. Uh, but it kind of made me realize that quickly enough, soon enough, we, we need you to can work.
0: broaden the broaden the uh, repertoire. So to exactly,
1: speak. exactly. Uh, and this is where I immediately one of the first steps I did was get in touch with the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, which is one of our main partners today. Um, hmm. And Initially, so it took a few months, honestly, to, to get uh, a foot in the door.
0: Yeah, you make it sound easy, but both you and I know how challenging that process is.
1: Yeah, it took a while, and I tried a few different approaches, mm-hmm. a few different routes. I ended up landing on someone who took a, took a meeting or, or a call, I can't remember. I ended up going there to meet with them, and the, the point of my very early contact with the IRC was two, twofold. One to validate the idea and kind of get their opinion. The IRC, maybe just for context, also for for everyone here on on the call. The IRC is one of the main uh, resettlement agency, refugee, refugee resettlement agencies here in the US. They're one of eight or nine agencies. So, if anyone knows what refugees need, it's, it's really that uh, that agency when mm-hmm. they're first resettling, at least. Um, so, the first goal was to get validation from them to see what they think <coughs> about the idea. If that's something that's even interesting, right? Uh, to referee to, to, if that's something, if people would be even interested in that idea. Right. Uh, and two, to see if that's, if there would be a way for us to partner and if they would be willing to kind of help us um, find people mm. who are excited about the idea. And that's how it went. They did validate a few things. They did uh, change a few things. Also, they helped us kind of reconsider some ideas we, we had that were completely um, unreasonable, right? And it was good to have a partner right. to increase through it. What um, year
0: was this, when this partnership happened?
1: That was 2015, I would say. Also,
0: oh, yeah, so w- w- roughly when we met. So 2015, <inaudible> you have this, yeah, uh, we, we, you have this partnership in place. You want to broaden the repertoire, go beyond hummus. Uh, but as, as I think, perhaps uh, you can tell me if I'm right or not, finding the refugees in New York may not be as easy as one would have hoped. Or was it easy?
1: It was again through this partnership. So the IRC is in charge. Part of what they do is help refugees or help their clients hmm. find jobs, find employment. Hmm. So I went yeah. to that employment office and you know, they kind of, uh, uh, it's a win-win-win, right? I
0: gave you, yeah, exactly. So that's the partnership 101, right? How do you create partnerships that are winner for, or winner for, win for refugees, win for eat uh, eat off beat, and win exactly. for IRC. Everybody wins. Okay. Um, how do you, uh, how did you figure out the business model, the payment structure, and how does off, Eat Off Beat w- work at that
1: time? Yeah, so that's one of the things that obviously are continuously under consideration, right? We keep changing things, we keep reassessing things. Hmm. I think one thing has been clear since the very beginning. For us, we have three goals, right? The first is to create quality jobs. And I'll talk a bit more about what quality jobs means. The second is to build bridges between us cooking at the kitchen and our customers having our food at home or at the office. And the third, ultimately, is about changing the narrative around refugees, around immigration, mostly here Mm. in the US. Uh, But going back to the first goal of creating quality jobs, um, the moment where we gear away from that goal, I think this is where we would have failed miserably. So again, I I always try to keep remembering this is really our our north uh, star, if you will. Um, and this again, to, to connect it to, to, to your question, this kind of guides everything the way we we structure the entire company in a way or the way, right. processes. Um, so walking back from there, uh, this is how we started setting, you know, starting with salaries, for instance, compensation structures. We always wanted that to be above living wage, or at least starting with living wage, and to this day. All of our positions start at least with living wage, and there is a very quick uh, room for um, for improvement or for growth beyond there, uh, beyond that. Mm. And it's not minimum wage, right? It's it's we're starting at living wage. Uh, so that's uh, one one. And then you walk back from there, and you make the rest of the business work based on that. Because if that doesn't work, I that doesn't work, right? Right. And maybe just again for context for everyone else here on the call, this is. Very challenging in the industry because it 's an industry that works on minimum wage, basically uh, you may hear now there 's also a huge conversation on um, fast food i, I won 't go really there, but right uh, there's like it 's either a minimum wage or sometimes even lower there 's an exception expect- yeah. for fast food employees where it 's even lower than minimum wage, which to me is. Um,
0: many of them are immigrants, and um, many of there's a passport angle to it as well. Yeah, we yeah, we all here yeah, read about the stories. Yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, definitely, I, I don't want to <laughs> go into a different conversation, but basically, this is why, as a business, it's harder to make such decisions uh, because you're competing with other companies that are paying actually minimum wages, and this is where and this is kind of a twenty thirty percent usually of your uh, of your hmm. expense structure uh, of your cost structure, basically. Wages, but anyway, there, there are ways to make it work, and I think we are proving that. And for me, it's really about proving that it can work, right? It's more about reorganizing, reshuffling your priorities. We rely on tech a lot to optimize some things in a way that makes it cheaper. Uh, we rely. There are other things, you know, ingredients where we have to be incredibly efficient in the way we use ingredients in a way that makes uh, makes us more competitive. From a cost perspective on ingredients, for instance, versus all of our competition, in a way that makes us be uh, be able to still compete in this market.
0: Yeah, it's a tough industry to serve. It's a challenging. Like COVID, obviously, complicated matters. But That's, before we sorry. go into COVID, tell us uh, tell us the entire sequence. How do I find about eat offbeat? Um, how do people order it? What's the role of tech? because it's a phenomena. I mean, like now you get so much media coverage here and there and for for great reasons. So the story clearly, uh, you know, resonates with people but that's necessary but not sufficient. You got to make the nuts and bolts work. You got to make the business survive on a daily basis. How do you do that?
1: Right. Um so i'm kind of i'm trying to see if i should tell you how things were or maybe how things are right now should we skip to where we are right now
0: no please give us as detailed an answer as you like our listeners are very patient they want to understand everything
1: okay sounds good um you know maybe i'll just tell you a bit more i kind of explain how we went about to be where we are today actually because there's so many steps from the moment we were talking about from when we started as we, we, we talked about hummus and uh, maybe just to clarify to everyone, we never really sold that hummus per se. Immediately we pivoted, or not immediately, but by the moment we, uh, by the time we started actually selling, we start we pivoted into something called, uh, or uh, we pivoted into catering. So when we started the company, it was specifically to do catered events. So we were catering everything from casual meetings to high-end gala dinners for groups of as small as 10 people, up to a thousand people, all over New York City. Uh, so that was in 2015, and we did that over the past five years. We were growing, kind of doubling sales year over year, with just doing catering and specifically focusing on corporate catering. Mm. Um, long story short, maybe just to clarify where we're at today with COVID. In March 2020, everything changed. We lost 100% of our business almost overnight. Within a matter of a week, we were at zero percent or at zero revenue coming in for you know, for an indefinite future, as you all know. We don't even know when it's gonna pick up even now, right? We have zero visibility on when things are going to pick up again. Uh, So basically it was a pivot or die situation, right? It was very clear to us immediately that we had to pivot or just close. And that's really a question that we asked ourselves a lot throughout March and April, like, do we close? Do we even keep going? Is it worth continuing or not? Um, Long story short, we took our best sellers when we felt like we had to do something about it, right? We took our best sellers from catering, repackaged them, repurposed them, put them in a box, and started delivering those boxes directly to our customers at home instead of delivering it to their offices. So we basically went from who who are our customers, who do we have in our network today, how can we serve them? They were now working from home, so we're like, okay, maybe we can send our food directly to, to their home. And that's what we did. Uh, and we ended up with a new concept. That's what we call today, meal boxes. So today we're a company that delivers meal boxes directly to uh, individuals at home. That's an entirely different process, an entirely different structure. We're in the DTC business today, direct to consumer business today, versus a B2B sales structure uh, 10 or 11 months ago, right? Uh, so yeah. almost overnight, within two weeks, we had to reinvent our entire process. and. Uh, Utkash, I'm sure you know, and I'm sure everyone, I mean, uh, many people here know. It must
0: have been so hard. I can only imagine, yeah.
1: It was hard, but at the same time, I think we were lucky in a sense that we have a team, you know, and we were a large team at the time. Now we're a little smaller of a team, but basically we're a team of mostly immigrants and refugees. Everyone on the team has rebuilt their lives three, four times over. So restarting Mm -hmm. a business was not necessarily... huge feat right i'm not saying it was easy it was definitely hard but just i feel like we were in a slightly better situation than other businesses because we had a team that was incredibly resilient and you know for someone to entirely change their job from friday to the next monday friday you're a driver then monday you're a packaging manager or uh, monday you're a chef and then on wednesday you're a driver or you know you're delivering it just happened. And people just learned the new processes, adapted, and you know, it was fine. Everyone was really, um, no one was kind of put down by this entire, uh, everything that was going around us. And maybe also to walk us back to the time, kind of explain to your, kind of show you what was even more challenging about the time. March was a very scary time. We didn't even hmm. know what the virus was, how it was going, how it was going to react. We were worried about our own health. And I personally right. was worried about keeping the kitchen running and having people come to the kitchen and risking someone's lives right so we really had to make that decision of do we prioritize our livelihoods and the livelihoods of the 30 40 families that were dependent on the business or do we prioritize our health because at the end of the day you know if we get sick which what do we do and yeah. to solve that we were constantly every week we were checking in with everyone making sure everyone was feeling safe we had an incredibly rigorous and we still do um, uh, process, uh, you know, to uh, you know, temperature checks or all, all of uh, those things. We stopped hmm. using um, commutes, uh, transport, public transit. We had cars pick everyone up, bring them to the kitchen. We reshuffled sh- uh, sh- shifts so that there was enough room for social distancing. Anyway, um, just to kind of give you a, an idea of the type of challenges that we had back at the right. time on top of... Creating a new business from scratch, basically, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. packaging, a delivery process, um, marketing, uh, we didn't even do marketing and, and catering, right? It was a B two B sales structure. It was a salesperson calling offices or doing emails. Now we had to digital market, like we had to do sales, uh, paid sales uh, or paid ads on Facebook, and you know, an entirely new process. But um, Luckily, we learned that quickly, I would say, and it was very successful because we were also lucky enough to have a community that was incredibly engaged and that wanted to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York at the time was also very, I would say everyone in New York was really looking to help out businesses that were struggling or communities that were struggling. So we, we also relied on that. Um, and that's how we survived so far.
0: So- Yeah, today, and more power to you.
1: Yeah, and in a sense we discovered something that may be more scalable. We discovered a model that may be even better than catering that we might combine with catering if if and when, yeah. when and if catering comes back. Um, yeah. you know, but I think the biggest lesson here is to always stay flexible and kind of see what opportunities are here, because it's not always and not get defeated by uh Maybe, I'm not going to say small things, but sometimes, you know, things that might seem like this is it, it's time to give up. Sometimes we, hmm. they might be opportunities, actually, that if we tackle them the right way, in the right direction, we can actually end up even stronger than, uh, than where we were.
0: Yeah, yeah. As your fellow Lebanese uh, Talib says, crises, uh, you know, there are some people who are anti-fragile. So they get strengthened with crisis. It seems like eat off beat under your leadership is definitely anti-fragile.
1: Yeah, thank you. That that definitely means a lot. <laughs> uh, but definitely, um, definitely it it feel, at least it feels like it was a situation that strengthened rather than fragilized. So
0: um the adaptability of eat off beat under your leadership comes up, the resilience of you and your team, largely refugees who actually don the kitchen, deliver the food, etc. Uh, are they all refugees? And how have you trained them? Like how does what does a kitchen really look like? Uh, yeah. What's the, where does technology fit into all of this? I would imagine everywhere, but maybe you can tell us more about it.
1: Yeah, uh, mostly refugees. Most of the chefs are actually, you know, refugees by status, by status. Uh, We're also very flexible there. It's really whoever the IRC refers to us. So if it's someone Hmm. who ended up coming here as an asylum seeker, we're we're not really about like very strict definitions. Or if it's someone, you know, who ended up going through the IRC, we're, we're not really looking At paperwork and seeing exactly what status. It's not about that. It's more about making sure we're representing cuisines that are underrepresented, even in a city as cosmopolitan as New York. And it's really about opening up opportunities to someone who may not necessarily have the same opportunities somewhere else. Right. So it's largely, but It's I would say 90% refugees, and then there's uh, another 10% who are maybe immigrants who may not necessarily have entered the US on a refugee visa, right? Which is uh, the fixed uh, definition. At the same time, we also have Americans on the team, right? Uh, Right now, it's again, it's a smaller team because we're restructuring. Hopefully, we're going to start rehiring uh, very soon. we're actually going to be looking for a marketing director. So if anyone here is is interested, I'll, I'll let you know at the end. Uh, at the end of May- we will
0: find you your marketing director. Network Capital is a huge chapter in New York and uh, many people are looking to serve in purpose-driven businesses such as yours.
1: So I'll be sharing. Get
0: to get you that person. Yeah.
1: I'll send you a job description. But basically these positions very often are filled by we also don't want to have like a siloed company where we're all immigrants, right? At the same time, for marketing, for sales, for different functions, it's, it's yep. a, of course functions by having mm. diversity too, right? We don't want yeah. to go the other way of actually yeah. ignoring That's an
0: interesting the
1: voices point. of actual uh, Americans. So we definitely also hire you know, locals, wh- whoever it is. It's more about really filling the right function with the right
0: person. person
1: regardless of without really looking on resumes, I'm really not into looking at paper. It's really not about the paper, it's really about the person and making sure we fit the right skills, the right, um, very often, at least for me, and I think for the company in in general, it's not about on paper, it's more about what your willingness to learn is, right? And if you're, you know, you might be you know, actually, this, this is one of the examples. The head of our delivery team, he started out as a delivery uh, you know, operator. He's the son of one of our chefs. He was still in school. He did this kind of as a couple hours a week on top mm-hmm. of studies just to get some extra money. He now runs the entire delivery team. He also runs our social media. So he's the one behind it. Wow. On Instagram, he's the one behind it because he's really good at it. And it, there's no reason why he won't well, he might be doing only marketing next year as soon as we find someone yeah. to place him or as soon as we have room to have uh, both things. So just to give you an idea, it's really not about what's on paper on your resume. It's more about what you're willing- But it's
0: about the jobs that you can do, right? Like how, how much hustle you have. And uh, I also really appreciated the nuance that you added on diversity, right? You want to make right. sure that the, there's the best person for the best job. Um, and you're doing a really uh, incredible- And I think what- puts all of this uh, in the right perspective is the power of story as well i think one reason why you've also been able to uh, tell the story if effectively is that people naturally resonate with it i have always oh, seen nice. even i remember the first time you pitched it at uh, at psih i remember hey this is a this is a very interesting model this should exist so um, how's the process of st- telling the story been for you in New York? Uh, Do people naturally gravitate towards it? Uh, How's the response of people? Are they skeptics? Are they believers? Mm -hmm. Are they both?
1: You know, the funny thing, and I know your reaction almost, I'm I'm not going to say everyone, but a lot of people have that same reaction of, wow, this is a brilliant model. But at the same time, the funny thing is, immigrants have been in the food industry for the longest time. Like immigrants, whenever they move to a new country, they start restaurants, they start food shag, right? Right? It's it's what most immigrants do. So it's really not, hmm. and it's not necessarily to to downplay what, what we did, right? But it's not, we, we didn't really invent a new concept. The only thing we added to that is the idea to do that more at a scale, right? And to do it more on, on, a, on a larger scale and really build into that. And maybe the only difference we have here is more about shifting the focus back to the human element in this entire industry, if you will, rather than anything else. It's more about connecting with the chef who prepared mm. your food rather than just eating, ordering something online on seamless, getting it delivered and then eating it without ever thinking of who actually made it, who who delivered the food, who prepared it, who picked the yeah. ingredients before all of that entire process. So for me, it's really, it's more about that. And I don't think we really reinvented the wheel by coming up with the model, but it's more about, you know, uh, restructuring things that, that was a bit more uh, innovative. Uh, but to answer your question of whether, how the response is, most often people are like, wow, this is a great model. But then the thing is, and where it gets serious is when we need to raise investments, for instance, or sometimes even when we go to businesses, um, hmm. sales perspective, like when we're trying to get the sales prospects, very often they're like, wow, this is a great idea. Let me connect you. And I'll give you a very concrete example. We're talking to, give me a company, I don't know, uh, Facebook. Let's right? say ABC.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: their, their food, dir- their director, whoever it is. Um, wow, this is a brilliant idea. Let me connect you to CSR. Uh, they they can help you like no i am here to sell you food <laughs> i don't need to connect with csr this is not about csr we have really good yeah. food yeah there's
0: not a ch- it's a bit yeah exactly
1: people immediately put you in the bucket of, oh, this is a cute project. And that's something that makes me cringe. It's not a cute project. It's a food company. We're selling great food. We are able to compete with the best of the best of, you know, corporate caterers. You don't necessarily need to see us as the CSR. And now you have
0: track record. Now you have five years of track record, five, six years of proven performance. Most businesses don't last this while, food or non-food.
1: Exactly. So, uh, exactly. We're definitely competitive on that uh, stage, and for investors, same thing, right? Immediately, they're like, "Oh, this is cute. Maybe you should talk to this nonprofit that does this." No, we're not a nonprofit. We're for profit. We're doing this. We are competitive, right? We we bring revenue. We're we're it's it's good. We're bringing profit. All all of that. But this is where it gets challenging sometimes when you're a social business, and I have to be very careful in how I pitch things sometimes in a way that makes us look like the aggressive uh, uh, business that also has a social impact. Sometimes that means I have to shy away from showing our our social impact just to avoid being put in that bucket of uh, uh, socially conscious and not necessarily profitable.
0: Got it. Which which you are, which is like, you know, VCs should be flocking after you. Most of their companies in that invest make no money and definitely not profit. Profit is a bad word in the VC world I hear. Uh, right. but of course i'm not a vc but i can have some friends um, when you when you look at the future of your business uh, are you uh, do you need money to scale are you out there actively looking for investments what's the plan and how have you gone to and please tell me you've pitched to talib yet
1: you know i have not that's a good idea <laughs> do you have any connections well- Let me connect you.
0: Yes, please. Uh, I mean, how could you not pitch to Talib? He is in New York. He would love that. He loves hummus. Let me make that. uh, Please do write to Talib. Yeah, Yeah, he's a neighbor. I'm just surprised you hadn't done that.
1: (laughs) Uh, But let's definitely talk about that uh, offline. But basically, we are actually fundraising right now. So funny, funny you mentioned. Uh, Back in catering, we didn't really seek institutional investment. Catering mm-hmm. was a very comfortable model. It was cash flow friendly, right? You book a gig, you get paid, you pay, you, know, you buy your ingredients, you make it happen. So cash flow was mm-hmm. really easy, but also the other on the um, other side, it's not necessarily a very scalable model in and of itself, right? So seeking investment for that model was a bit challenging. Back then, even when we were in catering, we always knew we wanted to scale and we were still looking for a way to scale. So we always knew it, was, it had to be either through delivery or models that we're doing right now. Hmm. But it was something that we never had time for, right? I, it was always like, yeah, next year, I'm gonna start doing that. But then you end up running the business and you're kind of, uh, so in a way, there is some silver lining to to COVID because it kind of pushed us to actually yeah. go there. <clears throat> so that's why today we are seeking investment. Uh, our model today does require, is not profitable in, in itself right now, right? The c so model, model yeah because we're in the dtc exactly we're in the direct to consumer we need to spend on marketing we need to spend tremendously on on tech to build infrastructure we hey you don't it.
0: need to explain yourself most most food tech companies that went ipos this they're, they're still not profitable so yeah, you're okay yeah, you're yeah. a good not company to
1: say it's basic, but just to let people know why you actually need investment right to, to run hmm. uh, such but that's I mean, to, to your point, uh, we are raising right now. We're raising a seed. We've closed a part of it. We're looking to close by end of February. Lovely. Um, so we've. You know, Network Capital has many
0: venture venture capitalists. Uh, let me make some intros, and I think uh, you'll be very interested in learning about how many people would want to support what you're doing financially. So right. I think once this masterclass goes out live, let's attach a fundraising. A deck or link mm-hmm. onto it as well let's do micro investment because you know i really believe in 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 what you're doing it's not just a social need which of course it is but it's a huge business opportunity i mean for people like you and i who who travel to different countries a lot i mean there's nothing quite like you know uh, great meals delivered you know with right. a story you know a meal and a story is something that one should pay for i think
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: So, yeah. and they
1: are paying. We, we have you know have customers who are very passionate about what we offer. So
0: you have a community. You have a great product. You have you've pivoted. You've demonstrated five six years of track records. Uh, yeah. Let's help you fundraise quickly.
1: Brilliant. Yeah.
0: Uh, Manal, I think, uh, as always, every time I talk to you, I feel even more inspired than before. So thank you for inspiring me and thank you for sharing your story. Uh, we are going to go all out with it and share it on all our platforms. We're a subscription-based company, but we'll make this uh, masterclass available without uh, any paywalls so that it can go and be watched by everybody because the story needs to be told. Uh, so, thank Manal, you. thank you so much. And uh, we have many boot camps, one of which is uh, the entrepreneurship boot camp and the social entrepreneurship boot camp. Uh, we look forward to having you as a faculty there. You deserve
1: to be. Brilliant. Here. Brilliant. I would love that. And I, I'm equally inspired, Ukash, by this incredible community you have built. So, you
0: know. It's one team, right? Like we're all in this together. Thank you, Manal.
1: Thank you.